Thank you very much, Philip. And uh, thanks too to the musicians. They were asking me earlier on if I, if I minded, you know, the piano and the organ playing together. It'd sound all right. And I said, the only problem is if there's no communication between the two, but I thought it sounded wonderful tonight. So there's obviously some sort of chemistry going on between the pianist and the organist. That was wonderful. I also say that sometimes, perhaps if there's been a sporting occasion on on a Sunday afternoon, it's sometimes hard to lift yourself um, and to, to preach with the, the joy of the Lord in your heart. And then on some occasions, it's really quite easy to do that. And uh, I find myself quite, quite joyful this evening. Uh, let's prepare ourselves to hear God's word and uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open our hearts to your truth and that you would open our minds to your will and that we would, by your Holy Spirit, discern what you would have us know from your word this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. I have to confess that uh, the Eurovision Song Contest is one of those programs that I have tended to, to give a by-ball to uh, in recent years. Um, however, I think this year it might be slightly different. Uh, the thought of Ireland being represented by Dustin the Turkey, uh, singing in a broad, thick North Dublin accent uh, a song called Ireland Do's Point. Uh, is enough, I think, to have me in front of the television set uh, later on in the spring. The Eurovision Song Contest is one of those strange affairs, isn't it, where increasingly now with so many entrants from Eastern Europe that uh, you just increasingly don't seem to get it. And there's all sorts of political goings-on as to who should vote for who. Uh, and I don't think it's ever been any different. I just think that increasingly we've been exposed to a, a type of pop and folk music that, because of our culture and tradition, we'll never quite get. When Jesus left his disciples in Acts chapter 1, he promised that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And as we come to Acts chapter 2, we begin to see how that actually came to pass. How the church was introduced, first of all, to Jerusalem. It's one of the pivotal chapters of the New Testament. In fact, it's one of the pivotal chapters of the whole Bible. It marks the beginning of a new era. And this new era is characterized not by a promise not by God's periodic interventions in history, not even by the presence of God in human form on our planet. But this new era is going to be marked by the permanent presence of God Himself by His Holy Spirit in ordinary men and women like you and me. And men and women of all ages and all times and all races and places. Those who have come and given their lives to Christ in repentance and in faith. And this new era, the era of the Christian church, is our era. It's our time. We're called to live by the values uh, of these early disciples and to follow in their footsteps of faith. I want us to notice two things about the Holy Spirit as He came 
uh, to those early believers. And the first thing is this, that with the coming of the Spirit, we have a message that no one else has. The crucial thing about this new phenomenon was the common message that bound these early Christians together, the message of Jesus, what we know was the good news, the gospel. And the first thing that we understand about it is that it was a message that was comprehensible. It was a message that was understood. It wasn't like the Eurovision Song Contest. This message translated cross-culturally. People could get it no matter where they came from. People of various language groups, Jewish exiles through the known world, you get them there in Acts chapter 2 from verses 9 and 10, the verses that Philip chickened out of reading because of all the big long name places. Uh, There they are, you'll see them. It was a message that was heard and understood by miraculous intervention. It was spoken in their own language by ordinary Hebraic Jews. And those men, for the purposes of this never-to-be-repeated day of Pentecost, had miraculously been given the power to speak in other earthly tongues immediately, spontaneously. The wonderful thing about the Christian gospel, folks, is that it can be understood by anyone. I had the privilege a few years ago of seeing this amazing work of putting the message of Jesus into the language of the people, uh, to see that work continue in a remote village in Mali in West Africa. As local farmers and traders were given pieces of Scripture by the Bible translators and told to read them and to check that the message had been translated correctly. The message itself is profound. The message of God become man. The message of forgiveness and salvation. And yet it is also so simple. One of the first people to translate the Bible into English was a man called William Tyndale. He was told to stop translating it by the religious leaders of his day because they feared what would happen if ordinary people got hold of Bibles. Tyndale said, If God spares me, I will have it that the humblest plowboy in Britain knows more of the Scriptures than the bishops of the church. That's the legacy of Acts chapter 2. A well-known Bible teacher of about 50 years ago a former Harley Street doctor who became a a well-known preacher, uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, was asked to speak at the Cambridge University Union, part of the IFES of the day, in in an outreach. And at the end of his talk, a student stood up and said with a a very upper-class English accent, Dr. Jones, what you say is very interesting, but it strikes me that any manual worker in any building site in the country could understand what you've just been saying to us Cambridge graduates. And Lloyd-Jones said, It strikes me, sir, that university graduates and undergraduates are just as much in need of God's grace as building laborers. This is a message that everybody needs to hear, so it is a message 
that everyone can understand. It was also a message that was unique. The whole thrust of Peter's sermon was to show that Jesus was indeed the true and promised Messiah. The message of Peter at that day of Pentecost was that nobody else fulfilled the prophecies that were given about him. Nobody else had died a death on behalf of the people. No one else had lived a sinless life. No one else had been raised from the dead. This Jesus, says Peter, is both Lord, God, and Christ. You see, the test of any religious movement is essentially, what does it teach about Jesus? The New Testament church was clear about the three things that you see in Peter's sermon here in Acts 2. Jesus was the fulfillment of the promises of a Savior to come. Jesus was God, and Jesus demanded a response. And so the people heard. They were moved. We read at the end of the sermon that they were cut to the heart. They were conscience-stricken. And Peter informed them that the only way to be saved from a world that was going down the tubes, this perverse and corrupt generation, as he puts it, this, this, this world that was under the judgment of God, the only way to escape was by repentance and by faith. In this world of so many other religious options, we may be lulled into thinking that this is a unique situation, but the world of the early church was also a pluralistic world. The world of the early church was also a world where there were many other religious uh, beliefs competing for attention, so many other truth claims uh, claiming to be uh, the one way. And in our world of so many other religious options, a world where we need to and are commanded to welcome and to love and to protect from abuse neighbors, friends of other cultures and other religions, we need to remember that we can do that without necessarily accepting the validity of the religious belief. You see, if any other religious system had been adequate to deal with the human problem of sin and judgment, then Jesus need not have died. And so, whether it is someone of another faith, or whether it is an atheist, or an agnostic, or a materialist, we just follow the early church's example and point them to Jesus and the freedom possible in Him. That brings me to the, the third thing about this message, and that is this, that it is a message that was universal, universal in scope and in time. You see, there will be those who will say to you that what I've just said about the uniqueness of Jesus is nothing more than Western cultural and religious imperialism. But that's not true. This movement began in the East, and at the very beginning, at the very birth of it, it reached people of every color and every culture. <clears throat> we have seen that. It was a cross-cultural message, a trans-cultural gospel. Christianity today is a faith movement that is growing rapidly in Asia, in Africa, in South America, while we in the West, because we have lost sight of Jesus and His good news in its simplicity, maybe we've sold out to scientific positivism, modernism, postmodernism, philosophies or materialisms that, that, that compete for this. We struggle to believe that this Jesus can make a difference to our lives or the lives of others. 
And so we hold back from sharing him with our neighbors and friends because we're not convinced it necessarily makes any difference. There will be those too who say Christianity has had its day. It's on the wane. But Peter says, no, the promise is to you and to your children and to their children's children. In Kirkpatrick today, in Northern Ireland today, we are inheritors of this. It was a message that was understood. It was a message that was unique. And it was a message that was universal. The second thing that we notice about the the, the work of the Holy Spirit in those early Christians, uh, and this is something that Christoph will be expanding on uh, next week, so I'm only just going to mention it. I'm not going to, to steal his thunder, but it is vitally important for us to get a full picture of the chapter. And that is that with the coming of the Spirit, we not only have a message that no one else has, we have a community that others long for. We have a community that others long for. And we read those final verses of the chapter, and we see that here were people that were wholeheartedly committed to one another. Here we see uh, people that were spiritually disciplined, devoting themselves to the apostles' teachings and to prayer and to the breaking of bread. And we see a people who were outrageously generous. That was the community that was established as a result of this message. Radical. A community that changed people's lives, that others looked in and envied. As I seek to try to apply this, this message to us today, I'm asking the question, what does it mean for us to encounter the Holy Spirit? What does it mean for us to encounter the Holy Spirit today? What questions may we have today? I watched a strange phenomenon a couple of years ago. A young woman was disclosing intimate facts about a total stranger. This woman knew that this stranger was engaged. She knew about her estranged relationship with her parents. She knew about her personal, physical, and emotional problems. And then she gave advice on how all of them could be healed. It wasn't a word of knowledge and a ministry time at some service of Christian worship. It was the latest episode of Psychic's Corner on Dublin Radio. I mention that because it's always very important to remember that every work of God can also have counterfeits and parallels. And if we concentrate on external phenomenon alone, then there may be things which are not of God that may be mistake, mistaken for works of God, and there may be things which are of God that people will dismiss as not being of God. So when it comes to encountering the Holy Spirit today, we need to look beyond the externals. It's a problem as old as the day of Pentecost, because as God miraculously enabled these early disciples to speak in the languages of all the other folks who were gathered together that day, what did some people say? Some people looked at them and they dismissed the supernatural work of God as just that the disciples had been out on the tear the night before. And it's possible that we will have questions as to what is really of God when we encounter 
uh, this uh, big issue of the, of the Holy Spirit. We may ask, well, what are we to expect as Christians today when we encounter the Holy Spirit? Now, this is a big, big jo- uh, subject and topic, and it's not an uncon- uncontroversial one either. And it's not the job tonight, as we look at Acts 2, to go through that whole issue. But obviously, there will be questions raised, perhaps, depending on the tradition you're coming from, uh, with regard to those issues. And what I've done is that I've actually photocopied um, uh, an address which I gave on another occasion that dealt specifically with the whole issue of miraculous gifts today and the various views on that. And if that's something which particularly concerns you, or if that's something which particularly worries you, then just come up to the organ and pick up a copy of that. There's about a dozen or 15 copies there. But it is necessarily something that we have to briefly touch on. What are we to expect when uh, we encounter the Holy Spirit today? Because this is a story about, about joy, about power, about the birth of a, of a new community. And what Peter and Paul experienced, they explained in their later letters to the churches. And some people will say, well, are we to expect a new Pentecost? Now, if what they mean by that is, do we need to experience the Holy Spirit? Yes. Do we need to have fresh and new experiences of God the Holy Spirit all the time? Yes. But the terminology is not right. In terms of salvation history, there only was one Bethlehem. There only was one Calvary. There only was one Pentecost. There only was one incarnation, one atonement, one coming of the Holy Spirit. So what we experience today in our churches is the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit, sometimes greater, sometimes lesser, sometimes visible, sometimes invisible, But applying the reality of God's grace worked through the incarnation and atonement into our lives today. There'll never be another Pentecost, just as there will never be another Calvary. The Holy Spirit has come. The Holy Spirit continues to work in a a multitude of ways in His church. We need to pray that that we will keep in step with Him and be part of this life-changing ministry. And as we do that, there are some problems or some mistakes which we can make from time to time. And I just want to highlight a few of them. First of all, there is the danger that we ignore the Holy Spirit, that we box Him in, that we limit Him. I sometimes feel that Presbyterians can be guilty of this, almost embarrassed to speak about the Holy Spirit, almost believing Him to be the sole domain of charismatic tongue speakers. And the result is that we become blind to the work that the Holy Spirit has already been doing in our lives and already been doing in our church. We don't open ourselves up to His leading or to His challenges. We find ourselves joyless, powerless, and living very gray, spiritless lives. can't deny that that can be true, I'm sure. Wherever churches are declining or dying, wherever formal religion has replaced radical Christian living, wherever people's view of God is small and their expectations are low when they come to worship, whenever that happens, we have lost sight of the Holy Spirit. If we don't ignore Him altogether, then we box Him in or limit Him. Paul says specifically to the Thessalonians, do not quench the Spirit. 
Do not despise his prophesyings. We ignore the spirit at our peril and at the risk of sentencing ourselves to powerless Christian lives. The second mistake that we can sometimes make is that sometimes we try to manipulate the Spirit. We, we Notice I said we try to manipulate because, of course, He's a sovereign person. He cannot be manipulated. He does His work in His time and in His way. He can't be limited or stereotyped or manipulated into acting or manifesting Himself in the way we expect, we choose, or we prefer. I'm sometimes disturbed when I hear folks speaking of calling down the Holy Spirit the way an African witch doctor or native Indian shaman would speak of summoning up the spirits. Yes, we do pray for the Holy Spirit to be with us. We can pray, come Holy Spirit. But at times, uh, I've been in situations where it has seemed that folks have believed that there needs to be a certain mantra, there needs to be a certain tone of voice, there needs to be a certain atmosphere in order for the Holy Spirit to come. Sometimes folks feel that they can precipitate His coming in a, in a particularly spectacular way that conforms to their ideas. They're asking for, they're expecting perhaps overt physical manifestations, shakings, tongues. And that is the danger. If those manifestations then don't happen, many make the mistake, the crucial mistake of thinking that therefore the Holy Spirit has not been present. I've been in situations where I've, I've heard that said, the Holy Spirit cannot come because these things aren't happening. It means our personal experience of the Spirit may not be. In fact, it won't be the same as our neighbors and friends. None of us will have the same experience of the Holy Spirit because He works uniquely in our lives because we are uniquely created and loved by God. With some people, their encounters with God's Spirit will really be in your face, full of noise and bluster and energy. With others, it will be quiet and thoughtful, almost imperceptible. And it's bizarre to expect or to ask others to experience God in the same way as we have done. Don't try to manipulate the Spirit. Thirdly, there's the tendency to unnecessarily divide up the Trinity or break up the Trinity. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are three yet one. One in purpose, one throughout history and enacting the great plan of salvation. I remember picking a, a leaflet up once a number of years ago. It was an introductory leaflet for a new fellowship. Again, it was somewhere around the Dublin area. I was horrified to read in the first paragraph this statement. In the late 1960s, the Holy Spirit returned to the church. The Holy Spirit has never left His church. He has always been active through the ages whenever men and women have been living for Christ and making a difference in this sinful world. I often, to give another example, think it's, it's unfortunate that sometimes we speak to children about asking Jesus into their hearts. Well, we know what that means, but it's a little misleading because Jesus, of course, is sitting in the right hand of God, the Father reigning in heaven. It's the Holy Spirit who is in our hearts from the day we become a Christian. Baptism in the Spirit is something that happens at conversion. It's the clear message of the New Testament. If we don't have the Spirit, we don't have Christ. Anyone who calls themselves a Christian has the Spirit. 
Baptism is a beginning word, an initiatory word. Therefore, baptism in the Spirit happens at the beginning of one's encounter with the Holy Spirit, which is, of course, at conversion. Other later experiences of the Holy Spirit for which we all long may be fillings, fresh encounters, special anointings, whatever, but they're not baptisms. Maybe you're not convinced. You say, well, Monty, you know, I am a Christian, but I just don't feel that I have the Spirit. I'm, I'm lacking something in my, in my Christian life. That may be so. doesn't mean you don't have the Spirit. Every time you've resisted temptation, that was the Spirit. Every time you witnessed for Christ, however imperfectly, that was the Spirit. Every time you have unselfishly done a work of mercy or justice or help, that was the Spirit working in you, motivating you, changing you, making you more like Jesus. Every time God's truth was preached and it moved you, that was the Spirit. That was what happened in Acts chapter 2. The people were cut to the heart. They were conscience-stricken. The Spirit moved within them. 3,000 conversions came when Peter had, by the power of the Spirit, proclaimed Jesus crucified, raised, ascended, and reigning. The Spirit points us to Jesus. He makes us more aware of Jesus and the love of the Father. And that's the most basic test we apply to any of our spiritual experiences. Do they focus on us or do they focus on Jesus? Don't break up the Trinity in its unity. And then fourthly, there will always be a tendency to over-spectacularize the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, maybe you think I'm being a little hard. I'm almost implying that we should shun all spectacular signs and be cynical about any physical manifestations of the Spirit. I'm not, I'm not saying that. Please believe me. I don't want to box God in or limit Him. I just know that pastorally, so much hurt and so much guilt can accrue when Christians don't show discernment, when they've been told to expect spectacular, miraculous things, which when they don't happen, maybe when they're not healed, they even begin to doubt whether they're Christians. Maybe they try to pretend to manifest the tongues or the physical manifestations just so that they're not left out. The truth is that those special times, those incredible in-your-face experiences are no more real than the humdrum everyday work of the Holy Spirit that we should be praying for every morning. Strength to resist temptation. Strength to witness. Strength to live for Christ. That is vital spirit activity for which we should be praying. You see, as I said earlier, it's impossible to tell just from the outward signs whether or not God has been present. It will only be discerned over a period of time if you observe the fruit of God's Spirit in the lives of those who claim to have been changed. Think about it. There, there was a, a well-known Christian movement a number of years ago that uh, specialized in some particularly spectacular manifestations of the Spirit. And if you saw someone who found themselves stricken on the floor in some sort of trance, barking or clucking, it may be that God was releasing them from some very, very deep-seated emotional stuff, bringing them a degree of wholeness. It may be. 
in which case my only problem was it happening to the same person every second evening. But it may have been the case that it was a genuine work of God's Spirit. On the other hand, it may also have been the case that it was simply an exhibitionist who enjoyed making farmyard noises. The fact is that we never immediately know. So don't be guilty of what some theologians have called over, or sorry, super supernaturalism, over spectacularizing the spiritual. When the mature response is to wait for results, we have to see the fruit. We have to see how it pans out when we go through the bad times. You see, the sad truth is that anyone can experience or pretend to experience outward stuff, but the inward stuff can't be faked. The inward stuff of the fruit of the Spirit, of love, joy, peace, faithfulness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, that can never be counterfeited. Nor should you despise the unspectacular promptings of the Spirit as you go about your daily Christian lives. The name of a person called to your mind out of nowhere who suddenly you have an urge to visit or pray for and realize that they really needed you at that time. A sense that someone might be in trouble and need help. An inclination to speak to someone or write to them. You don't know where the inclination came from, but it was just right at that time for that person. I remember a number of years ago, I found myself praying with two friends in the States when I was visiting there. They were in the midst of a series of very major family crises. I didn't know how to pray for them. But after a few minutes of general prayer, the words of an old gospel hymn flashed into my mind in half-forgotten phrases and images. I don't think I had sung the song for about 15 or 20 years. It wasn't even a hymn that I knew well. But I just said in my prayer something about the love of God being real to them, and the words just flowed, dredged up from the deep recesses of my mind. Could we with ink the oceans fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. When I finished, my friend looked up at me and said, you know, we were introduced to that hymn in our church this morning. God must be telling us something. And they then had some tangible words to cling on to in the midst of their crisis. You see, ultimately those ordinary, open-to-the-spirit moments can be worth so much more than a thousand spectacular physical manifestations. Let's finish by getting back to the main message of Acts 2. Another way of looking at Acts 2 is looking at why the Holy Spirit was given. And three words that I leave with you as we seek to, to round this up. The Holy Spirit was given for communication. He was given for reconciliation, and He was given for power. He was given for communication. They spoke in all the other languages so people could understand. He was given for reconciliation, bringing together people of different cultures, different traditions, different economic backgrounds, different races. 
above all, cementing and guaranteeing that reconciliation of us with God. And he was given for power that the community who he, God the Holy Spirit, formed would change the world. And yet, in our sinfulness, in our pettiness, how often instead of communication do we have confusion? Instead of reconciliation, we have division. Instead of power, we have lifelessness. People are confused about what to think about the Holy Spirit, of how to respond because of bad theology and bad practice. We have tongues without interpretation. We have false and misleading and inaccurate prophecies that go unchecked. We have some people claiming that all spectacular signs are of God, and others claiming that all such signs are of the devil. That confusion, that non-communication is not of the Spirit. The Spirit brings believers together, and yet isn't it so strange and sad that churches divide and people leave churches over these types of issues? If there's a divise of Spirit, if there's a feeling that some Christians are more spiritual than others, that is not of the Holy Spirit. If people claim God has told them to do something which in the end divides the body and causes hurt among other members of the body, that is not of the Spirit. If there is resentment, either on the part of those who have had the experience or those who have not, that is not of the Spirit. The Spirit brings reconciliation. And finally, instead of power, we get that dead religion. Yes, going to charismatic meeting after meeting and having sensational experiences week after week can be as much a form of self-indulgent dead religion as dry Presbyterian orthodoxy can be. But if we're honest, if we're really honest, I think we recognize that it is folks like us from maybe the more traditional church backgrounds who find more than most that the empowering, invigorating life of the Holy Spirit is absent in our lives and in our worship. This spirit who we possess as believers often remains just that, a possession. We flinch from letting him flow through us to touch the lives of others. We struggle with temptation. We shirk away from witnessing. We play at prayer. If the church needs anything today, it needs the power of the Holy Spirit working sovereignly in whichever way He pleases, spectacularly or ordinarily, thunderously, noisily, or through the still, small voice of calm. I often say to folks in some of our evangelistic courses, don't be put off Christianity by the charlatans of American TV evangelists. Let me say to any of you this evening who maybe are just a little bit uncertain or suspicious of anything to do with the Holy Spirit, don't be put off the ongoing 
renewing and filling work of the Holy Spirit by the chaos of bizarre, extreme charismania. The Spirit brings life. It is this life that we long for in our lives. It is this life that we need in our church. And it is this life that is going to be so crucial to the future of our culture and of our land. Let's pray. No, not by might, nor even power, but by Your Spirit, O Lord, healer of hearts, binder of wounds, lives that are lost, restore. Flow through this land till woman and man praise Your name once more. Amen.